Most of us wrestle with some combination of fear, worry, or anxiety. For some of us, it's a daily battle. But the reality is, everyone worries about something. I'm Adam Hamilton, author of the new book and Bible study experience, Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. Over a five-week period, we'll explore the most common worries and fears experienced by Americans today. We'll consider the anatomy of fear, the actual physiological processes behind our experience of fear. Then we'll explore proven practices to deal with our fear and to look at the important role faith can play in helping us live unafraid with courage and hope. While you may always have to live with a measure of fear, you don't have to live afraid. Join me together as we will come to understand that courage is not the absence of fear, but it is the act of doing, living, and being, despite our fears, secure in God's love. Hi friends, welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest. Thank you for being with us this morning. And if you'd like to let us know you're here, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just tell us about yourself and uh, you'll get more information about The Well. Thanks for being with us this morning. And this is the fourth week of our series, Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. It's based on a book by a pastor named Adam Hamilton of the same title. And every week... We're watching Adam give a message about the topic for that week. And then on Wednesdays, we have a a Wednesday online connect group that is discussing that same topic that coincides with the book and and with the sermons. So I've heard good things about that group. Thank you to those who are part of that. Thanks to Travis and Kristen for leading it. And today we're talking about what is one of the most common fears that we all face, the fear of failure. Maybe you have some kind of calculated risk that, that you're thinking about taking. And and you're afraid that it might fail. Uh, Maybe there's some dream you're pursuing. And and maybe you even tell yourself, I just couldn't do that. And you you self-sabotage. You you short-circuit the the idea before before you even get started because you're wondering, man, do I have what it takes? And you're afraid of failure. Maybe you have high hopes for a relationship. And you just wonder if, if it'll really work out or not. And so fear of failure is something that we all feel from time to time. Some of us right now, maybe that's what's standing between you and fulfilling your calling, fulfilling your dream. Maybe it's something God-given, but right now you're struggling with this fear of failure. So uh, we'll watch a video by Adam Hamilton, and then I'll come back and wrap up the service. Right now, let's, let's watch Adam Hamilton, Fear of Failure. And that's what we want to talk about today, is a fear of failure, a fear of rejection, fear of disappointing other people, a, a fear that I don't have what it takes to be able to do it, a fear that I'm going to fall on my face, that I'm going, to, I'm going to make a mess of things, that I'm going to be a failure. That's what we want to talk about today. And I don't know how this works for you, but I hear little tapes in my head sometimes that tell me, you don't have what it takes to do this. There is no way you can make this happen. What happens if it's a failure? What happens if it doesn't work out? What's going to happen to you? What are people going to think? Are they going to laugh at you? Are they going to make fun of you? I mean, these are the kind of tapes that play in my head. And I try not to listen to them, but sometimes I do listen to them. So I think about just two small examples of when I listened to them. When I was, a, when I was in high school, Levon and I were dating in high school, and, and uh, we'd go to the school dances, homecoming and prom, and I will tell you that I was terrified to fast dance with Levon on the dance floor. I could not do it. I would not do it. Um, I, I would slow dance because it's not hard to do this back and forth for a while. But when it came to fast dancing, I thought, I'm going to look like an idiot. I'm going to look like a fool. I'm going to embarrass myself. There's no way I'm going to do it. And so we'd always go sit back down when it was time for the fast dances to come up. And you know, I did that for 30 years. 
for 30 years. And then finally, after 30 years, Levon said to me, you know what, I don't care if you ever dance fast or not, but I want to dance before I die. I want to be able to dance fast. And so I want to take dance lessons. You can take them with me or you don't have to. And I'm like, I guess, I mean, I don't want you to dance with somebody else. Yeah, I'll take dance lessons with you. So we took dance lessons out at Camelot Ballroom on 151st Street, and we learned how to dance fast. Now, the problem is, in my head, I hear this, but it's true. I can't even clap to the beat of the music. I just am. And so, you know, we learned to dance, and you count your steps, and she'd say to me, you're not doing it right. You're not counting your steps. And I'm like, I know, but this is the best I got. So you just take what you can get. <laughs> and, uh, and now we go out to, you know, wedding receptions, and we go to galas and other things, and we dance. And you know what? I probably do look foolish, but at 52, I don't care anymore. <laughs> I just want to have fun. And... Uh, you know, the other place where, where I was afraid to step out and do something because I knew I would look foolish, and, and I'm still, I still feel this, is playing golf. So I've taken golf lessons on four different occasions. Um, I will play in at least one church golf tournament every year, and that's the church's golf tournament. And, uh, and then, you know, we place a scramble format, and you have two teams, of, you know, two teams of four who are waiting at each hole to tee off, and they send you so everybody's starting at a different hole. And I always pray, Lord, please don't let our foursome start on hole one. And the reason why I don't want to start on hole one and tee off there is because all the volunteers are standing there watching. And so you stand there, and you get ready to hit the ball. And, if, and this has happened to me several times where I was on, t on hole one, and I get ready to tee off, and in my head I hear this voice that says, you're going to whiff it. <laughs> it is going to go no further than, than the women's tee. And, and I look around, all these people are watching, and then I just want to say, would you all just turn back, turn your backs to me while I hit, but, but of course I don't do that. And you know what the funny thing is, because I am so psyched out about this, half the time I hit it to the women's tee and no further. I've, I've perfected it. It's really, it's amazing to watch and see how this works and how many times it goes just to the women's tee. And all of that, you know, because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of looking foolish or stupid or falling on my face. And, and those are two tiny little examples. But I'm guessing you can think of examples of things that you're afraid to do in front of other people because you're going to fall on your face. Of, of course, it's not just falling on our face in front of other people, sometimes we're afraid that it might actually cause some harm to us or other people. The things that we think about doing, maybe we think we should do, but then we decide not to do it because we're just afraid. And I'd remind you that we've been learning about the fact that your body, your brain, has a gift from God called your early warning system, right? It's the fight or flight mechanism, and it was designed into you to protect you. And now that fight or flight mechanism is constantly looking for possible threats to you, right? And it's sensing this through your eyes, ears, nose, mouth, you know, your, your sense, all of these things. But it's also, you know, in your mind thinking about what are some things that could cause damage to you. And it makes use of your imagination. Now, your imagination is really important. It imagines the possible threats that are out there to you. And most of the threats that we worry about and the flight or fight mechanism works for is our threats to our body, like bodily harm, something bad that could happen to you. But but you know what's interesting? It also takes into account things that could hurt your ego. Because you see, it remembers when you were hurt in the past. Your brain is amazing and your early warning system is amazing. It's constantly learning from dangers in the past, right? You burn yourself and you know don't touch a burner again or whatever it might be. You learn from this. Well, the same thing happens when it comes to your ego and the, and the fight or flight mechanism is trying to protect you from harm here. And sometimes the harm that happens here is more painful than the harm that happens to our bodies, right? So when you were growing up, your, your brain took into account that time when all the kids made fun of you on the playground and teased you and made you feel like you were this tall. And your brain remembered all those times when you did something and your dad said, I am so disappointed in you. I can't believe you did that. And every other time where you fell on your face, and, and you know, your mom and dad would try to tell you, you'd come home from school and you'd be crying, and your mom and dad would say, listen, just tell those kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. But was that true? Of course it wasn't true, right? I mean, uh, words hurt us. 
And, and we internalize that and we feel that. And your brain says, I need to protect you from that because you were really hurt that one time. I need to figure out how to keep you from being really hurt again. So don't do that because you don't have the skills for it because they're going to make fun of you. And don't do that because somebody's going to express how disappointed they are in you. And don't do that because you might fall on your face. And so we have these tapes that play in our minds. So it's partly about being physically you know, protected and, and not doing things that could harm us physically, but it's partly about not harming our ego. I think about all the things that we have to do and how the brain's early warning system works. Now, see, the brain's early warning system, by the way, is, it's a negative thing, right? It's not looking around going, hey, all these happy things could happen to you. Like, its purpose is to figure out what are all the bad things that could happen to you and to protect you from it. So, but it needs the rest of your brain to analyze the threats. It's only raising up the possibility, right? And then your job is to figure out, well, how likely is it that this, this thing will happen? And even if it does happen, is that such a bad thing? Should I press through or not? But oftentimes, we start to feel the fear, and we just step back. We become risk-averse, right? We become afraid of doing anything that our early warning system is saying, you know, might be, you know, harmful to us or hurt us in some way. Now, I, I think about what this looks like and how it works, and I think about going to Colorado. And I, I love going to Colorado, and I love driving in the spring or summertime when you can drive the curvy mountain roads. And, and so here's a, here's a sign that you'll often see in Colorado. Watch out for falling rock. Now, you look at that, and you go, okay, uh, what does that mean exactly? Like, is the whole side of the cliff going to fall over onto the road? I mean, am I supposed to be looking constantly out my roof or out the side? Or, you know, do you just take your worst enemy with you and put them on the passenger side near the, you know, near the mountain? So something happens, is going to happen to them. I mean, what do you do with that, right? So you look at that sign, and here's what you're meant to know. There is a small possibility that a rock could fall off the mountain, right? You're you have to analyze yourself. If it was a big possibility, they would have built a big screen, you know, like a big fence there to catch the rocks, right? But since they didn't build that, it must be a pretty small possibility. And, and so then I, I have to go, okay, so am I willing to take the risk? In other words, is the reward versus, uh, you know, greater than the slim risk that a rock might fall off the mountain? And is there anything I can do to prepare myself for that? So I'm going to watch, kind of, to make sure there's nothing I see sliding down the mountain or the trees are waving or something because there's a whole avalanche happening. But I realize the risk is small, and I'm going to still drive those mountain roads, right? And, and here's the thing. If you decide that every time you see one of those warning signs, you're not going to take that route, you're going to miss out on the best roads in America, right? And so somewhere along the way, you analyze the risk, and you say, no, I know that's a slim possibility, but it's probably not too serious. I think I can drive on this road anyway. And that's how it works in our lives. Now, we understand that this means that we are taking some measure of chances. And even those of you who are most risk-averse and you're most afraid of failing or of something happening to you, even you are taking risks on a regular basis because you drove in a car to get here, right? Like that's, that's the most likely way you're going to die in America, you know, uh, that's not health-related is you're going to die because you're in a car accident. And yet you realize the odds of that are pretty slim, greater than if you get struck by lightning, but still pretty slim. And so you're going to get in a car, put your seatbelt on because that, you know, that helps deal with the, mitigate the risks some. And you make sure you're driving with somebody who knows what they're doing and they don't drive while they're intoxicated. Right? So we have a way of measuring out the risks and, and then looking at the rewards and we say, okay, I think I'm going to go ahead and take the risk. You all do that. So when I think about this, you know, the, the possibility of failure, yes, the possibility of failure is there and you are going to fail sometimes and you're going to learn something from your failures, but the failures in the past don't stop you from taking risks in the future. And just this last week, Mary Tyler Moore, who passed away, had, I was reminded of a quote of hers in which she said this, take chances make mistakes. That's how you grow. Pain nourishes your courage. You have to fail in order to practice being brave. I love that quote. And here's a woman who undoubtedly failed many times, but she knew far more success, and she knew that success because she was willing to fail, and she was willing to get back up, dust herself off, and go after it again, right? 
This is how it works in life. Now, Wayne Gretzky, you know, was the great hockey legend, and you probably heard this quote of his. He said, you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. So in our lives, we can choose, like, I feel afraid. What if somebody makes fun of me? What if somebody, what if I miss the shot, whatever? And you're going to miss all the shots that way. Or you say, it's okay if I fail. It's okay if I miss, but I got to take the shot anyway. I'm going to take the risk and take the shot, and whatever happens, it's going to be okay. So, so I think about this, and I think about the way that this affects uh, each of our lives. And, and, and as I think about that, I think about how people in our congregation, you know, anybody who's been successful in any measure in their life has had to deal with the fear of failure and the risks that they're taking in order to see that kind of failure, uh, that kind of success. And so this week I was talking with one couple. I was interviewing them for a sermon for next month, uh, Randy and Debbie Linville, longtime members of our church. Randy was a CEO of a company. Debbie was a commodities trader. And, uh, and at the end of the interview, I said, hey, for this Sunday, I'm talking about risk and failure, and you guys have had to have the fear of failure in your lives and taking risks. What does that look like for you? And I thought their comments were just perfect for today's sermon. Take a listen. For me, as I look back on life, the only regrets I have are the things that I didn't try. So to me, that's the lesson. When I look back on something and I lament that I didn't try, I've, I've never beat myself up over failing. It's always what could have been. So that's a, that's a bigger torment than failing. Failing is a learning opportunity. Well, my fear of failure is more about talking in front of people. I've never been good at it. I don't like to do it. Um, but as Randy has pointed out to me several times, it's um, when God has asked you to do something, you just do it and just trust that he will, he will come through and help you out with that. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> I love it. You know, she told me when we were, I asked them to do this interview, and, and Debbie said, you know, Randy can do it, but I don't want to do it. I can't do it. I can't talk in front of a camera. I can't talk in front of people. I said, Debbie, I really need you to do it. And uh, I want you to hold on to that quote that she said, you know, that when God asks you to do something, even if you're afraid, you just do it, and somehow it works out okay, because that's really where we're heading at the end of this sermon. So, so I think about that, and as we were talking, I said, well, what, what are some risks that you have taken, some moments that you were most afraid in your marriage? I thought maybe it was going to be about business or something else. And they looked at me and they said, well, the moment when we took the greatest risk and we were most afraid, or at least it felt like the greatest risk, was after several years of wrestling with infertility and finally realizing we weren't going to have a biological child. And we began to talk about adoption and we were both afraid. And as I was thinking about the fears I've heard from other people who are contemplating adoption, you know, there's, there's often the fear of, uh, will I bond with this child and will they bond with me? And sometimes there's a fear, what if the mother tries to take the child back after we've had this child for a while? And then what if there's something genetically wrong with the child that we don't know about as a baby? I mean, we don't know the history. And, and there's, you know, what, what will other people say? Or how will they be treated? Or how will our friends look at us? Or, I mean, all of these kind of things that go through your mind. And, and they said, we decided finally to take the risk. And we brought home little Grace. And now Grace is in her 20s. She said, you know, they said, Grace has been one of the great gifts in our life. And then several years later, they brought home Jacob. And Jacob's now in his 20s. And you know, so these two kids, they said, these children, actually Jacob I think is 18, these two kids have changed our lives. They're one of the greatest blessings and we almost missed out because we were afraid to take the risk. I want to ask you a question. Do you ever fear failure? Do you ever fear of what might happen if you do this? Do you ever find yourself failing to take the risk because you're afraid of what might happen if you do? 
Because if that's you sometimes, and I suspect it's all of us sometimes, sometimes you're missing out on the very best parts of life because you're afraid of failing. So I think, you know, one of the steps to overcoming the fear of failure, and maybe the first and most important step is simply this one, it's to recognize, yes, you are going to fail. You are going to fail sometime. Everybody you know is going to fail sometime. You're going to fall on your face. Sometimes people are going to make fun of you. They're going to say things about you behind your back. You are going to embarrass yourself. Sometimes you're going to hurt yourself. All of those things, especially the words other people say, are going to hurt you. But they're not going to hurt as bad as you're afraid they're going to hurt. And once you get over the fact that you're not going to be perfect and you're never going to fail, like think about the baseball players, right? The very best baseball player in base, in pay, players in baseball last year hit, what, 350? Right? That means that two-thirds of the time they, they either struck out or they got, you know, they hit out, right? And, and, and football players and basketball players and, you know, no matter who they are, you're always going to have failure in your life. And, if, and the sooner you come to terms with that and go, it's okay if you fail, right? The, the real tragedy is when you're not trying, it's not failing, once you get to that point, you begin to be able to deal with the fact that, hey, I can take risks. So so I think about Winston Churchill, who once said this, success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. I mean, here's one of the most influential players on the world stage in the 20th century, and yet he had failed, and he failed, and he failed again, but he got back up, and he kept going, and it was because of that that he ended up having such profound influence on the 20th century. Now, when I think about what this looks like and, and what this can feel like in the area of sports, I think about Michael Jordan, right? So Michael Jordan, he's one of the, well, actually the NBA website says he was the greatest basketball player of all time. Not bad on the NBA website to say that about you. He also played Major League Baseball, you'll remember. He was a five-time NBA most valuable player. He holds a record for 10 NBA scoring titles. He holds the single season scoring average record with 30.1 points per game in one of his seasons, he, he has uh, 866 straight games with 10 or more points. I mean, the guy was brilliant. The guy missed 9,000 shots. He lost 300 games. I, I love the, the thought of 26 times they passed him the ball and they could have won the game if he'd made the shot, and 26 times he lost the game for them when he missed the game-winning shot. And you think about that, and you think, what would have happened if he was at the University of North Carolina, or maybe he was in high school. Let's say University of North Carolina where he played. What would have happened if he'd played there, and the first time he lost a game for the team when the, game was, when the ball was thrown to him, he said, I can't do it, I can't do it, I lost the game. What if he'd taken seriously all the harassment he got from people who said, if you'd only made the shot, we would have won the game, and he would have given up. But you see, 26 times he lost a game, and he still got up and said, I'm going to do it again tomorrow, and I learned something from it. And I'm not going to let all of that fear of what other people say or think keep me from playing the game. Now, fear of failure can be a powerful asset to us. So where it does work in our favor is where it leads us to not to not take the risk, but it leads us to work really hard before we take the risk. So I'll just tell you, the number two fear of Americans is what uh, Debbie Linville articulated. That is the fear of public speaking. I don't know where that comes from. Maybe it's high school you know, speech class, or maybe it was when we were kids and we stood in front of a group of people. But you know, this, this dread, this fear of I'm going to fall on my face, I'm going to embarrass myself, it's going to be horrible, and other people are going to watch, and they're all watching you in that moment, you know, waiting for you to fall on your face. And, and you know, I, I do this for a living, and I feel that. 
And I've told you before, I told you in the first sermon, you know, my nightmare dream is I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm, I'm afraid that I have shown up to preach in my underwear and I have nothing to say. Well, I'm not, I promise you I'll never preach in my underwear, but I do fear sometimes that the sermon is not going to have done what God wanted it to do. It's not going to inspire you or encourage you or help you in your daily life. And, and, uh, and, and for that reason, I am, I mean, I write well, this sermon, this is the third draft of the sermon. Often it'll be four or five drafts of the sermon. Sometimes I write a sixth or seventh draft of the sermon. Saturday night when I get done preaching, Saturday night I go back and sometimes rewrite the sermon. I am neurotic about this. And the reason why I am neurotic about it is I have this terrible fear of not having fulfilled the charge that I had to stand in front of you for 35 minutes and somehow teach, encourage, inspire, or speak on, you know, for God to speak through me to you. Now, there are times where I've worked my tail off trying to have something worth saying, and I still feel like this just stinks. It's not any good. And so I just say, hey, God, look, I prayed and I prayed and I worked and I worked and, and I've done everything I can think to do. So now it's on you. If this doesn't work out, it's all your fault. <laughs> and there have been times where I have wanted to say to you when I'm done preaching, I am so sorry you had to sit through that. Please come back next week. I promise it'll be better. And I'm telling you that because it's going to be the same thing with you, right? No matter how good you are at what you do, no matter how hard you've tried, you're going to find yourself falling on your face sometime. And you got to get to the place where you can say, that's okay. I'm going to get back up and I'm going to do it again tomorrow. So that leads me to think about the times in Scripture where people are afraid of uh, what stood in front of them, afraid maybe to take risks. And what's interesting is I've shared with you over a hundred times in the Bible, God says, don't be afraid. And almost always he says, don't be afraid because I'm with you. And the reason why God is saying that a hundred times in the Bible, it's almost always, not always, but almost always in the context of God saying, I need you to go there. And the people of God say, I don't want to go there. I'm afraid. Like, I can't do that. And God says, don't worry. Don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you. You see, it's not just about like when you're going to go out and do something for your own glory, but the Scripture promises have to do with when you're going where God wants you to go, God's going to say no matter what the risk, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be with you. And so I think about just a couple of examples. You go to Genesis chapter 12, and you find this foundational story in the Bible. Everything else in the Bible is built on this one story. Abraham and Sarah are in retirement. They're living in their luxury maintenance-provided villa in Haran. And while they're there, he's 75, she's 65, and God says to Abraham one day, well, actually, I'll just read it from the text. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name respected, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. All of the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. Abraham and Sarah were 75 and 65 and had no children. How are you going to make us a great nation? Just trust me. I will. I've never been to, to the land of Canaan. Where, where are we supposed to go? It'll be okay, Abraham. Just go. You can imagine having to sell everything. I'm a retired, Lord. Surely you can find a younger man to do this. No, I need you. I need you. And you see, the very best and most important part of Abraham's life would all happen after he was 75, after he sold everything they had and they moved to the land of Canaan. And we are here today as Abraham's descendants, those who are recipients of the promise that all the world would be blessed through him. Because he said yes when everything inside him felt like saying no. Fast forward 500 years, and we come to a man named Moses. We spent six weeks with him last fall. And, and you may remember, he's 80 years old. He grew up in the, in the, as a prince in Egypt. He grew up with all the luxury you could have. At the age of 40, he goes out to see how the Egyptians are treating the Israelites. Right, And the Israelites are Egyptian slaves. And he sees what's happening, and he can't remain silent anymore. 
And he kills an Egyptian who's beating an Israelite. And then he gets scared, and he runs. And he runs to the Sinai, and for 40 years he remains in hiding in the Sinai. So now he's 80 years old, and at the age of 80 he sees a bush that's burning, and he goes up to the bush, and he hears God speaking. He hears a voice speaking through the bush, and it says, says, Moses, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. And then we read these words, I've seen the suffering of my people back in Egypt. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And then what happens in the next two chapters is that Moses gives excuse after excuse as to why he shouldn't be the one to go. God, I can't go. What, well, who will I say sent me? Well, what if they don't believe me? Well, I stutter. I can't speak. And then finally, this is Moses' last uh, attempt to get out of this. He says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Now, this is the most important figure in the entire Hebrew Bible, and he's so afraid of failing or what could happen to him if he goes back to Egypt that he tells God, finally, just please send somebody else. I don't want to go. I wonder if you've ever prayed that to God. Maybe, you know, maybe you heard us talking about we need people to sign up for a mission trip to go somewhere. Oh, God, please send somebody else. I don't want to go to Africa. I don't want to go to Haiti. I don't want to go to Honduras. I don't want to go to, you know, t- tutor kids in the inner city. Please send somebody else. I don't want to work in the nursery. I don't want to hand out candles on candlelight Christmas Eve. I don't want to be a section leader in the new building. I don't want to give that. I don't want to speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. Lord, please send somebody else. I suspect we've all prayed that prayer at some point in our lives. Please send someone else. I want you to imagine what would have happened with Moses. He would have missed out on the most important part of his entire life story if he had refused to go. Instead, what happens is he goes and he leads the children of Israel out of slavery and bondage and to the promised land. You remember what God says to him? This is the most important word God says, Exodus 3.12. God said, I'll be with you. I'll be with you on this journey. I'm calling you. I'll be with you. I won't let you go. It's going to be okay. Now, you remember Moses leads the Israelites to the edge of the promised land. So after two years of their freedom and liberation, they're at the edge of the promised land, and Moses and the Israelites send out spies up into the land, and the spies come back, 12 of them, and 10 of them say, we can't do this. It's impossible. It's too hard. The cities are fortified. They've got giant walls around them. The people are taller than we are. They're stronger than we are. They are well-fortified and well-armed, and we are like grasshoppers compared to them. There is no way we can do it. And two of the spies came back and said, no, they're right, those 10 people, but they're not right about whether we can do it because the Lord, our God, is on our side, and if he's on our side, then we can do this, even if it seems impossible. And who did the people listen to? The two spies who said we could do it? Or the 10 spies who said we couldn't. And of course, they listened to the 10 spies who said we couldn't. They said, let's get a new leader and let's go back to Egypt and be slaves again. I don't want to have to go there and face those dangers. And you remember what God said to them? He said to them, well, because you refuse to trust me, you can stay here. And and you may remember the title of that sermon when I preached on this was Paralyzed by Fear Just a Few Miles from the Promised Land. And a lot of us have spent a lot of time in our lives paralyzed by fear just a few miles from the promised land. So God doesn't let any of those adults go into the promised land. He says, you're going to wait until all of you are gone and your children are the ones who will go in the promised land. And 38 years later, Joshua, the, the uh, assistant to Moses, is ready to lead the Israelites. Moses has died. The rest of the Israelites have died, but the younger generation is still there. And now they're parked on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, just opposite of the city of Jericho. And they're scared because Jericho is a heavily fortified city, and they're afraid to go over. And this is what God says at the beginning of the book of Joshua. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. 
I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Why do you think those words are in the Scriptures? Are they just telling us what happened 3,200 years ago? Or are those words there for God to say to us, just as it was in the days of Joshua, it will be for you? I want you to just close your eyes for a minute. Would you do this? Uh, Just humor me for a second. Close your eyes. If you're online, close your eyes for a second. And I'd like for you to imagine the things that you've been afraid of in your life or the places where God has called you to go and you were hesitant, you were afraid of what would happen, the times when you've been terrified. And I want you to listen carefully because I believe God is speaking this word to you today. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 1,200 years later, Jesus and his disciples are around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is preparing to ascend to heaven. And just before that, he's called his disciples to a hillside there. And this is what he says to this ragtag band of misfits, some of whom couldn't read or write. Most of them could only speak Hebrew or Aramaic. But this is what Jesus says to them. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. He's asking this group of people who are uneducated, misfits, to travel over to Rome, to travel to Asia Minor, to travel to parts east, to Persia, to go down to Egypt and India and all these other places. I need you to go out and I need you to tell them about me. And they've got to be saying, what are you talking about, Lord? We've never been outside of uh, of Galilee or or Jerusalem. We don't don't know how we'd even do it. We don't even know how to speak the language. We, We can't do that, Lord. And he says, oh, yeah, you can. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Trust me. Now, what's interesting, this promise about being with us really has to do with when we are following his path, right? And I've encouraged you every morning I wake up at 6.09 this morning, I slipped uh, to my knees next to my bed and lifted up my hands and just said, here I am, Lord, I'm yours. Please use me and guide me and help me to do your will and walk in your path and walk with me, Lord. Use me, I pray, right? And that's what we're meant to pray every day, I think. Here I am, Lord. Let me walk in your path. And see, when you're walking on God's path and you're doing God's will, then of course he's with you all the time and you don't have to be afraid. Sometimes we get off track and we think it's really about us, right? And, and it's about what our will is and, and building up our own little kingdom and building our glory. But Jesus taught us to pray something that we prayed just a few moments ago in the service, right? And the early church prayed this two and three times a day. In the second century, Christians would play, pray this prayer two or three times a day. Let's remember it a bit. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You get to the end of the prayer and we pray, and thine is the kingdom, and thine is the power, and thine is the glory. And when that becomes your life aim, your life mission, you don't have to be afraid because he walks with you wherever you go. And that's what we call the leap of faith, right? This is where we trust. We trust. We, we have this thing, and it's scary, and we're not certain, and we might fall on our face, but I'm going to trust that God is with me. That trust we call faith, that leap of faith, and that trust gives us, that faith gives us courage, which is what Randy Linville said at the end of our interview. Take a listen. And what I've learned is that risk and faith go hand in hand. 
Uh, I have more tolerance for risk the more faith I have. I have more courage the more faith I have because I know God's with me. And that's how I've learned to balance it out. God wants us to succeed. Uh, he wants us, in fact, he puts us in those, those compromised positions where you feel, I'm out over my skis. I'm not ready for this. And if you just sit back and say, it's not about me. Uh, it's about me being obedient. Why, why has he positioned me here? And so I, I really think risk and faith and courage are hand in hand. I absolutely have more courage, more risk-taking tolerance, the more faith I have. So I think back over my life, and this is where I want to end. I think back over my life and all of the most important parts of my life, the things that I've done that led to really important things that were the most meaningful parts of my life, all required risk-taking. They required faith. They scared me before I did them. I think of the week before, uh, or the, the night before I got married. It was uh, the week after high school graduation. Levon and I were 17 and 18. It was a, it was a month before our birthdays. And we're getting married, and, and people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I hope this is going to work out. But somehow inside, you know, I felt like somebody asked me, you know, like, why are you doing this? I'm like, because I feel like God is calling us to be married. I can't explain it. I just feel like we're supposed to be married, you know, and I remember the night before we got married, one of my family members said, I give it less than 10 years. That was a real pick-me-up the night before you get married. <laughs> but you know, 35 years later, we're still, actually, I would say we're more in love with each other than we were the day we got married. We've been through some highs and lows and great adventures. Yeah, that's a good thing. Um, but, but I think if I'd listened to the fear, I never would have done it. I think about answering the call to be a pastor and then going to seminary, you know, and I, I think we moved to Dallas, Texas, and we had no idea what we were going to do for jobs or how we were going to pay for seminary or, or, or where we were going to go once I graduated from seminary, what the churches would be like where I'd serve and where we'd be living at. We had no idea. We just felt like God was calling, and we said, okay, God, we're a little scared. We're kind of afraid. I remember the first night we were down in Dallas, you know, we were both in tears, like, what have we done? We were scared. I, I remember going to the church where I was going to be a youth pastor, and I sat in the parking lot in my car at two in the morning all by myself, sitting in this old beat-up car, and I'm, and I'm like, God, can I do this? I don't know if I can do this. Please help me. I, I think I'm so, supposed to be here. Please. And then I think about 25 years, uh, 26 years ago, uh, it was 1990, and I was ordained elder at the Missouri West Annual Conference at Central Methodist College in Fayette, Missouri. And the year that I was being ordained an elder, I was also being sent by the bishop to start a new church in the southern part of Kansas City. And at that annual conference, they always announce, they read the names of the pastors and where they're sending you at the very last, that's the last thing they do at annual conference, the last three or four days. And, and so the day before that, I had just been ordained an elder, and, and uh, one of the district superintendents, that's like the, you know, one of the leaders in the conference, he was 25 years older than me, he came up to me and he said, Adam, I'm really worried about you. Uh, you know, you're going out to start this church, and it's underfunded, and, and I just don't see how it's going to work and it's, it's really a recipe for failure. It just cannot, it can't succeed. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if you go out there and you fail, then they're going to send you to four tiny little churches somewhere. You'll drive between all four of those churches. They call them four-point charges. And, you know, you've got so much potential, and I just, I want more for you than that. I just think this is a bad move. You still have time to tell the bishop that you want to go do something else. There are better appointments out there for you than to go start this new church. And I'm sitting there listening to this man. He's 25 years older than I am, and I'm thinking, and, well, this is what I told him. I said, you know, I can't explain it but I feel like God has called me to go do this. And I might fail, and I might end up falling flat on my face, and I may end up being sent to go serve those four little churches because I failed at starting this, but right now i got to try this because I feel like God is calling me in. And I sounded kind of bold and courageous, but my knees were knocking as I was talking to him. And I thought, have you lost your mind? Can I tell you how grateful I am 
that I said yes and not no? And then I think, well, where would my life be without that? And where would your lives be? And what, what, how would the world be different if there wasn't some 25-year-old kid who just said yes? And I'm just, I'm telling the, you know, these are my stories. I want to know what are your stories. I want to know where is it that you've been too afraid to say yes and I want to encourage you from this time forward to be willing to take the risks that God is calling you to take. I mean, I think about this church, you know, and, and before we built the first building, and, and I got to tell you, I've, been, I've had so many sleepless nights thinking about the sanctuary. What if nobody comes? What if it doesn't work out? What if, what if you know, and, and hearing people make fun of it and make fun of me or saying things, and it's like, okay, that's just part of the deal. But I believe over the next century, that building will have impacted the world in profound ways, and people's, hundreds of thousands of people's lives will be changed in that space. And I think about starting the campuses. When we started Resurrection West, I thought, well, there's hundreds of people who aren't going to come over here anymore. Is that going to be the right thing to do? But, you know, right now they're running 1,000 people a weekend of worship, and they're the, if they were their own congregation, they would be the second largest United Methodist Church in Kansas and Nebraska after Church of the Resurrection Leewood because we were willing to take the risk. And Resurrection Downtown and Resurrection Blue Springs, and last night there was a fellow from Resurrection Blue Springs who was here, and he said, thank you so much, Church of the Resurrection Leewood, for taking the risk to start Resurrection Blue Springs because that's my church. And I don't know where I would be if you all hadn't taken the risk to say, let's do that. I want to ask you one more time, are you playing it safe or are you willing to take the risks? Because it's in taking the risk that you find yourself smack dab in the middle of what God wants to do. And God promises you these words, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. I'd like to invite you simply to say to the Lord, I offer my life to you, God. Just whisper that to him. Give me courage and boldness. Help me to take risks for you. Use me, O oh God, I pray. Not for my glory, but for yours. And now I invite you to join me in the prayer. We prayed it once already, but let's pray it again. The early church prayed it two or three times a day. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.